0: Well, please take a Bible and turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians 10 this morning, verses 1 through 13. You were here last time, you'll remember that uh, Paul was speaking about uh, his own self-discipline in his Christian life, lest he, after having preach the gospel to others, after having ministered to others, he himself might be uh, disqualified from the race. Paul wanted to be uh, the real deal, not simply a, a, a superficial guy, somebody who put on good appearances. He, want, he wanted the reality of what he preached to be present in his own life. And I think we can relate to that. After all, it is it is all too easy, isn't it, to, to put on a show, uh, to project piety. It is possible to, to put on the appearance of godliness when, in fact, that's really all it is. It's just a show. But Paul didn't want to be a counterfeit Christian. He, he used that kind of language. He wanted to be authentic. He, wanted, he didn't want to, uh, to presume upon the grace of God in Jesus Christ, because he knows that presumption like that as a way of life uh, leads to disqualification. And this theme of the danger of presumption in the Christian life uh, carries over now into 1 Corinthians chapter t- uh, 10. Paul now wants to warn the Corinthians more directly about the danger of presuming upon grace. Now, after having looked at what Paul said last week, and in a few moments looking at what Paul says about Israel and their example here in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, I can imagine that the concern might arise for some of you that is Paul, is Paul suggesting in some way that someone can, can lose salvation? Well, no, of course not. The Bible it clearly teaches, doesn't it, that all those whom the Father has given to his Son will be, will be kept secure until the end. So then what do we make of these warnings? This is a passage that is full of warnings to the people of God, to the visible church of Jesus Christ. So how should we understand them? Now some Some Christians are quick to maybe appeal to pithy phrases like, once saved, always saved. Uh, That was a common phrase that I heard a lot in Christian circles. I came up in, once saved, always saved. And for some people, that meant that once you made a profession of faith, it really didn't matter uh, what you did after that. It really didn't matter uh, how you live. Once you trusted in Jesus Christ, that was that. You could go on living however you pleased. But that kind of thinking, I think, is really hard to reconcile with the warnings of Scripture to confessing Christians, isn't it? And so I think a better way that, that captures the biblical teaching is to use the language of perseverance. Because perseverance is at once the promise of God to all of his children. God will secure and preserve his people so that they certainly will Uh, persevere to the end. And that's a wonderful promise of God given to us in the gospel, but it is also simultaneously uh, involving our responsibility and our activity. Because you see, the way in which God keeps his promise to preserve us and keep us secure to the end is by enabling us to persevere in a life of faith and obedience. And one of the ways he enables us to persevere uh, is by the ministry of his word in in our lives, by, by wielding his word in our hearts. And as we'll see today, his word includes loving warnings about the danger of presumption. He wants to make it clear when we are in danger and how to seek safety maybe just to illustrate how, how we ought to approach this text. Just this last week, I was in the kitchen, and I just uh, made some eggs on the stovetop. We've got an electric stove out of our new house. And uh, I turned around, and I saw one of the girls reaching up uh, towards the stove. How do you think I reacted? I, mean, I, I spoke strongly. I spoke urgently. And, and that was followed up with an explanation of the consequences of disobedience. And while I spoke strongly and urgently, every single word that was coming out of my mouth was spoken out of love for my daughter, my concern for her well-being. And I think that's how we should understand passages like this. Our Heavenly Father wants to keep us from danger and preserve us from tragedy. And so, that is how we should, we should hear this text. It is full of stern warning, but every word of it is an expression of the father's love for his children as he seeks to protect and preserve us, enabling us to persevere. Okay, so here's, a, here's an outline of what we're going to try to cover today as we look at the first 13 verses of chapter 10. First of all, in verses one through five, we have examples here to warn us. Uh, Our attention is directed to the experience of Israel and the wilderness, and a parallel is drawn between them and us, and their example is meant as a warning to us. Second, in verses six through 12, we have exhortations to direct us, which are based on the experience of those prior examples. So, as we look at these exhortations, we're going to see this morning there are some direct, straightforward exhortations that we need to hear. And then, third, in, in verse 13, there's, there's a marvelous encouragement to comfort us and help us. Okay, so there are examples to warn us, exhortations to direct us, and encouragements to keep us going. Before we read, let me pray briefly for us. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, uh, this time uh, before us, with your word opened up, before us is is going to be uh, for nothing unless you are here and unless you work graciously among us. So please illumine our minds, uh, open our hearts to receive work on our desires so that we will uh, more and more uh, the things that you will for your people. We ask all of these in, these things in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 1. Let's hear God's word together. For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank The same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Okay, well, let's jump right in here. Verses 1 through 5, we have examples to warn us. Let's see what Paul's up to. He he takes uh, us to the story of the Exodus, where Israel was led out of Egypt, uh, through the wilderness, and eventually uh, into the promised land. Here's what Paul is up to. He draws a parallel between their experience, and our experience. Between the experience of the Old Testament people of God and the experience of uh, the New Testament people of God. So, like us, Paul says in verses 1 and 2, they were baptized. Take a look at it with me. I don't want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea okay so they were they were led by god portrayed before them visibly in a pillar of cloud by day and as a uh, pillar of fire by night and they were led through the divided waters of the sea so that they could escape from the the egyptians their enemies who who were pursuing them now just as a side note that's a that's an interesting thing to recognize because You'll hear some of our our Baptist friends today say that baptism must mean immersion. (laughs) Interesting enough, Israel passed through the waters and they didn't even get wet. (laughs) And Paul calls this a baptism for them. As they emerged forth on the other side as the visible community of God's people delivered from bondage to their enemies. And then in verses 3 and 4, Paul says that the old covenant people of God ate spiritual food and drank spiritual drink. They were given bread from heaven and drank spiritual drink. When in response to Israel's complaints, uh, Moses in Exodus 17, you remember he struck the rock with his staff and the Lord caused water to flow forth from the rock to quench their thirst, to provide for them. Uh, We'll come back to that verse when we come to the Lord's table later this morning. Paul is saying, though, that there is a parallel between the experience of the Old Testament people of God and our own, and that their experience is an example for us to learn from. There's a whole lesson here in how we should read our Old Testament, but that's a discussion for another day. They were baptized They had a kind of spiritual food and drink, just as we, as members of the assembly of God's people, are baptized and have spiritual food and drink at the Lord's Supper. This is the parallel that Paul is drawing here. And the truth to which these point, you see, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, is the same. It's Christ. Israel was baptized into Moses, their deliverer, who's one of the chief types in the Old Testament of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we see that Christ is the rock that followed them, um, providing for them, just as the Lord's Supper points us to our provider in the Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, so Paul develops this parallel to say what he says in, in verse five, which if we've taken it in up to this point, now hits us with a stunning force. Remember, they were baptized like us. They ate and drank spiritual food like us. The Spirit worked among them. Christ was offered to them as He is offered to us. And yet, verse 5, nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased. For they were overthrown in the wilderness. They, They saw God's mighty power to deliver. They saw the miraculous signs back in Egypt. They saw God by a mighty outstretched hand deliver them through the sea. They saw God provide for them again and again and again in the wilderness. And yet, how many, how many of that first generation actually made it into the promised land? Two, Joshua and Caleb. See, Paul is saying, beware the danger of presumption. That is the warning here. Beware the danger of presumption. You may be standing on very, very thin ice. Paul is saying, you you know, you've been baptized. Maybe, Maybe you've even made a profession of faith. And Sunday after Sunday, Lord's Day after Lord's Day, you've been sitting under the means of grace where the Spirit works among His assembled people, you come even to the Lord's table. Paul says, well, so did our fathers in the wilderness. Now, interestingly, he calls, speaking to a Jew Gentile church in pagan Corinth, he calls the ancient Israelites our fathers, our fathers. But Paul says, so did our fathers in the wilderness, and they were not permitted to enter into the promised land. And Paul says this is an example, a type, typos is the Greek here, that we might not desire evil as they did. You see, you can have so many privileges. You can enjoy the amazing blessings of being a part of the visible church of Jesus Christ. And you can still fail to receive the Savior himself, Who comes to us again and again and offers himself to us through these great privileges? See, Paul was concerned that some of the Corinthians were indeed presuming upon grace. And this concern, dear friends, is is God's word to us today. It's what he wants to communicate to us today. You see, you need more, you need more than gracious privileges. You need more than belonging to the people of God by by birth. You need more than baptism and being brought into the visible community of God's people. You need more than the Lord's Supper. These are all wonderful privileges, but you need more. You need Jesus Christ himself. You know, what, what protection do you think your baptism or your church membership provides you from the judgment of God if after receiving these benefits you in the end neglect the reality they hold out to you and offer to you you know what use what use is eating bread and drinking the cup if you don't come by faith and feed upon Christ and so Paul begins with examples designed to warn us to to wake us up, to urge us not to presume upon grace on the basis of privileges received. We must pursue the one thing needful to know Jesus Christ. Do you know Jesus Christ for yourself? And then secondly, notice then how Paul goes on give these exhortations that are based on those examples. Okay, so after drawing the parallel between the Old Testament and New Testament people of God, Paul has some very straightforward, blunt, uh, direct exhortations to give here. And if we're honest, you know, sometimes we need this. Sometimes we need people to lovingly speak to us this way, to not mince words, to not allow our exhortations to die the death of a thousand qualifications. And Paul does that here. And and, uh, as he continues, he's still reflecting upon the experience of Israel in the wilderness. And what I want you to see here is there are four sins in particular that he highlights. Now, we've already seen these sins previously uh, polluting and corrupting the Corinthian Christians. And... Yet, I think also as we look at them, they they may just very well resonate with us in our own experience and in our own struggle with sin. So exhortation number one, don't be an idolater. Verse seven, do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Now, Paul has in mind here The story recorded for us in Exodus chapter 32. Moses is up on Mount Sinai receiving the law of God and Israel is down below at the base of the mountain and they're getting a little impatient. Moses has been gone for a while. And they say to Aaron, second in command, if you like, uh, hey, fashion for us an idol. And Aaron capitulates, collects their gold and jewelry and he fashions for them a golden calf. And then he says to them, Uh, Behold, Israel, here is your God who has delivered you out of Egypt. And then they had this great celebration, worshiping the golden calf. And that's where Exodus 32 says that during their worship, people sat down to eat and rose to play while Israel worshiped an idol. And just like the Israelites, you see, the Corinthian Christians had their own issues with idolatry. They had been called out of a culture that was immersed in pagan idolatry and pagan rituals. The city was full of temples and and idols. And some of the Corinthian Christians were having a difficult time actually separating themselves from the pagan idolatry of their day. Some were going to church on the first day of the week, fellowshipping with the saints receiving the ministry of the word, participating in the sacraments, and then the rest of the week they were going to the uh, sacred meals that were an integral part of idolatrous worship. As we've seen and as we'll see again, some of them were actually still going and uniting themselves with temple prostitutes, which was itself part of the idolatrous rituals taking place. So Paul doesn't mince words. If you go forward a little bit in verse 14, he says, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Get out of there. Run away from it. Have nothing to do with it. Now, although we don't have, you know, golden statues, I don't know of anybody who's holding, hiding any golden statues in their homes. I don't know. Maybe you hide it in the closet when I come visit. I don't know. I hope not. But um, we're not given over to this kind of idolatry. We don't have pagan temples and pagan rituals that we're tempted to participate in in the same way that the Corinthians were. But truth be told, we have our own issues with idolatry, don't we? And what is, what is an idol? An idol is anything that you worship and serve before God or alongside of God, instead of God. And if we have that in mind, that understanding of what an idol actually is, well, then we quickly understand, oh, yes, we have an idolatry problem in our own day. You know, I think one of the biggest idols in our day is the idol of self, right? Living for yourself, serving yourself, expressing yourself, fulfilling yourself. You know, what's the line of advice today? You do you, right? Just be yourself, express yourself. That's where happiness and fulfillment are found. But of course, it can be other things too. Another person, recognition, wealth, success, approval of others. And Calvin was right on, wasn't he, when he said that the human heart is a perpetual idol factory. And Paul is saying that just like Israel who is delivered mightily by the power of God, baptized and ate spiritual food and drink in the wilderness, and then quickly turned to idolatry. And just as the Corinthians were baptized and ate the Lord's Supper, but then headed off during the week to pagan temples, so we must beware the danger of idolatry. So don't be an idolater. And second, don't indulge sexual sin. Verse 8, we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. You see, this this time Paul has Numbers 25 in mind where the people of Israel were sexually immoral with the daughters of Moab. Interestingly, in connection with idolatry as a form of Baal worship. And God destroyed many of them, 23,000 in one day, 24,000 altogether, Numbers 25 says. And once again, in a similar way, sexual immorality in Corinth was bound up with the idolatry of the day. The practices of the temples of, of Aphrodite and Apollo included all kinds of sexual immorality as part of religious worship, part of their pagan ritual practices. And so Sexual sin was, was a temptation the Corinthians faced all around them. And once again, <laughs> there's a clear parallel, isn't there? Between the people of Israel, the Corinthian Christians in their own context, and we today in our own. We find ourselves in a sexualized culture. What uh, someone like uh, Carl Truman recently Uh, said in a book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, the day of the sexualized self. That's what he calls it. Because today, sex is a matter of of self-expression and self-fulfillment. Pornography is off the charts. It's an epidemic today. People, this is not an exaggeration, people are obsessed with sex. But you see, this obsession is really part, I think, of our worship of self. We are obsessed with sex because we are obsessed with ourselves. We're obsessed with expressing ourselves, satisfying ourselves, gratifying ourselves, being our perceived selves. Sex, in our culture's view, is not really today about loving or serving, or giving yourself to your spouse. It is instead more about expressing yourself, fulfilling yourself, and really at the end of the day, worshiping yourself. And so Paul says, don't be an idolater. Don't indulge sexual sin. And third, don't put the Lord to the test. Verse 9, we must not put Christ to the test, as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. Now we're in Numbers, the book of Numbers chapter 21, and the people of God were complaining about the provision of God given to them in the wilderness to to care for them. They were grumbling, saying things like, why did you bring us out here to die? Things were better back in Egypt, you know, back in the world. Why, Why can't we go back there? Why did we just come out here to suffer and die like this? They were really grumbling against God, or as Paul says, against Christ, who was the active divine agent in the wilderness, supplying and providing for their needs. And again, it's not hard to see how this applies to us. It's tempting, isn't it, at times to be dissatisfied with with God's providence and provision for us. To think of life back in Egypt, in the world, as the happy life. It can be tempting to long for, for the old days and the old ways and to complain and to test and uh, the goodness and the kindness and the patience of God. But then related to that, there's the final sin, the fourth thing Paul mentions in verse 10. He says, don't grumble. Don't grumble. We must not grumble as some of them did were destroyed by the destroyer. Now we don't know which specific incident Paul has in mind here because I think in many ways it characterizes the default mode of the Israelites in the wilderness. They were constantly grumbling and and complaining and the Lord responded to those complaints, yes, with mercy, but also with judgment. And the analogy I think plays out in the Corinthian church. Remember, Remember the Corinthians, they were not at all happy with the Apostle Paul and his, if we can put it this way, philosophy of ministry. Right? They, uh, they were used to listen, listening to these uh, traveling orators who spoke with a great deal of flair and uh, eloquence, and they really put on a show. And here comes the Apostle Paul, a broken and bruised man, and he's not interested in any of that. All he's interested in is teaching and proclaiming the simple truth of God's word and proclaiming the scandalous message of Jesus Christ crucified. And they wanted something more flashy, something that looked a little bit more like the world. And so they grumbled, they complained against the Apostle Paul. And dear friends, I wonder, you know, grumbling, <laughs> is that something we struggle with? Are we tempted to complain? Yeah, I think. If we're honest, we've all been tempted to grumble and complain at times. We've been tempted to grumble when things are not like the way we would want them to be. Tempted to grumble about our leaders. Tempted to complain because we want some kind of change within the church or in our own personal lives. You know, we want, we want something to be fixed. We want our kids to behave. We want our marriage to be better. Uh, we want to have a successful career. We, we want to be recognized for everything that we do. And when those things do not happen, what happens so often? Our sense of self-entitlement bubbles up and we begin to grumble, right? Isn't that what happens? we begin to think to ourselves, you know, we maybe won't say it out loud, but here's what's really going on in our hearts. Where is my best life now? And what's with all of this hardship? What is God doing? And Paul bluntly says, we must not grumble as some of them did. Here's the warning. We must not grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. You see, dear friends, according to God's word, grumbling is a big deal. Complaining is a big deal. Complaining and grumbling is right up there with idolatry and sexual immorality. Now, when I look at those four exhortations, again, you know, what, is it, what is it that jumps out at me? What jumps out at me is how direct they are. There's no mincing of words. There's no subtlety here. God's word, if I can put it this way, God's word is saying to God's people, stop it. Stop fooling around with sin. Yes, there are other things to say, of course, but sometimes we need to hear this. You are standing on thin ice and you need to get to the shore. Run to Jesus before the ice gives way. Isn't that what verse 12 is saying? In in other words, therefore, let anyone who thinks he stands beware, lest he fall. It is a warning, dear friends, about the terrible danger of presumption in the Christian life. When we wander away from the Lord and we're standing out there confidently on thin ice telling ourselves, I'm okay, I'm okay, I got this. Well, no, we don't. We don't got it. Take heed lest you fall, Paul is saying. Heed the warnings of the word of God. Take it to heart and take action. Take action. Don't let the word of God today be like water running off of a duck's back. Let it penetrate into your heart. So there are examples. You see, there are examples to warn us. And based on those examples, there are exhortations to direct us. And then finally, and briefly, there's a great word of encouragement to comfort us. Take a look again at verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation... He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Oh, what, a, what a precious encouragement this is for God's people as they, they face temptation. There are three parts to it. Let me outline them for you as briefly as I can. First of all, don't believe the lie that your temptations are unique. Don't believe the lie that you are somehow a special case. Is this what Satan loves to do? He loves to get us to think that in some ways um, we, we are unique, that we are in some way a special case. And then what we, what we do is we conclude from that, therefore the usual remedies will not work in our case. Friends, don't, don't buy into that. Yes, you may need particular care, personalized help to overcome certain sins in your life. But Paul is saying, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. There are gospel remedies for your temptation. Secondly, and and wonderfully, he says, God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. I want to ask you, please, please take that to heart. Dear dear brother and and sister, in Christ, you are not powerless. You are not hopeless. You're not helpless. You're, you know, Satan wants to get us again to to think along these lines that I'm I'm, I'm trapped, I'm, I'm in the grip of this thing. There's nothing I can do about it. And when that happens, when you begin to believe that, What do you start to say to yourself? You start to say, well, you know, if there's nothing I can do about it, if I'm powerless to resist, why struggle at all? Why fight against this? Might as well just give in. But here is a promise of God to hold on to. The temptation may be fierce and relentless at times, but God will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, an ability that God in his grace provides. And so as you rely on the the means that God provides, and that's an important qualification for this verse. It's not as though Paul is saying, hey, you Corinthian Christians, you can go out and neglect all of the helps that God has provided. You can go out and live however you please. And when there's a particular temptation that assails you, don't worry in your own strength. By your own ability, you'll be able to overcome it. No, Paul is saying, as you rely upon the means God provides, His Word, His church, prayer, the fellowship of the saints, the sacraments, as you stay in the fight against temptation in your life, rest assured that while you may indeed fall and stumble at times, yet by the grace of God, you will make progress. You are not consigned, dear brothers and sisters, to a perpetual cycle of failure in the Christian life. That is not the pattern for the Christian life. God has made you new in Christ, and you will make progress, no matter how slow and unnoticeable and hard-won that progress is. So stay in the fight. That's my encouragement to you. Stay in the fight. Rest assured that God is faithful. And so rely on his help and seek to obey him. And you will not be tempted beyond your ability to resist. And then third, there is a way of escape that God provides. A way of escape that God provides in his grace and his providence that we may be able to endure, to see through the temptation. Right? There's always a way out, no matter, no matter how strong the temptation. Just think about the four particular sins Paul identifies here. You don't have to live for idols. There's a better way. You don't have to indulge in sexual sin, sexual immorality. Turn off the screen. Turn off your phone. Leave the room. Go be with other people. Confess your sins to a trusted brother or sister in Christ and get the accountability you need you can get out of it you can put off the old and put on the new in Christ Jesus you don't have to stay there playing with fire and you don't have to be miserable complaining and grumbling about everything you can learn as Paul says by the grace of God to learn the grace of contentment you can cry out to God in the midst of that temptation You can flee from sin. You can stop playing around with it. And friends, this is wonderful news, isn't it? This is good news for those of us who are locked into this daily combat with our own personal sin. That united to Jesus Christ and dwelt by the Spirit of God, we are not powerless. We are not hopeless. Change is possible in the Christian life. So that by the grace of God, this is, this is his promise to you, you are not trapped forever. So fight on. Fight on. You see, this passage is saying to us, hear the warnings and take, take heed lest you fall. Listen to the exhortations. And if I can put it this way, stop it. So <laughs> Paul's saying, heed the exhortations and stop it, and receive the encouragement. If you're not a special case. God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability and he will provide a way of escape. And the last thing I want to say to us here is remember remember the Lord Jesus Christ who was tempted in, in every way as we are yet without sin. And so we can find in him all of the resources that you and I need for the Christian life, can't we, dear brothers and sisters? The resources for the forgiveness of our sins when we do stumble and fall and do that very thing that we hate once again. There is boundless grace for forgiveness in our Lord Jesus Christ. But there's also grace found in Him for change and progress and transformation because Jesus Christ can cleanse you and He can change you. So so look to him, keep your eyes fixed on him, trust in him, and do not presume upon his grace. This passage is urging us to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ with a sense of urgency, believing that he is an all-sufficient Savior for each and every one of us. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the gift of an all-sufficient Savior in our Lord Jesus Christ. Would you please help us this morning by your Spirit to to heed these warnings, uh, to heed these exhortations, and to receive this encouragement for ourselves. And this we ask and pray in Jesus' name. Amen.